Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Glarmer, joined, of course, today, as always, by... A barking dog in the background. Oh, no, hold yes. on. That's, <laughs> that's not me. Apo apologies, my dog is, uh, is, is very excited by something completely meaningless. <laughs> I'm Gabriel Krauser, and I am feeling slightly excited by things that are very meaningful, I hope. Well, Is that too good. much? Mm. No, no, that's always good. Yeah, today today started out with the glorious uh, journey to the newspaper store, to the corner cafe, uh, okay, to, to see buy, uh, if... What's that report? Mm. There, mm. there we saw a piece on the cover of their sort of analysis section and a two-page full spread inside of that. Arguing that racism is not the problem, that most South Africans know this, and that we need to get real about our problems so that we can solve them. And yeah, it's part of this campaign that we've been building up, and the billboards are up, and the website's going, and video another video is going up today. So feeling excited about that on a fresh, brisk Sunday. www.racismisnottheproblem.coza. Awesome. Yeah. Good stuff. It's nice when things work out. And we've got some pieces that we've sort of commissioned from outsiders uh, to get various takes on this. And some of them have been coming in over the weekend. It's been a pleasure to read. We look forward to sharing that as well. Yeah. Very good. Exciting stuff. Well, mm. hopefully now someone of the uh, racism is the problem crowd will get very upset and say something about it, um, which I think would be a good thing. That is the next step. We're, we're missing out on the, the every, my, my slightly false dichotomy, provocative dichotomy, I think useful to a point, is that on the one side you've got the racism is not the problem crowd, and on the other side you have the everywhere racism crowd. Right. And, of course, we can meet on the common ground of, like, no, sometimes racism is a problem, and you must definitely address that. But our view is, much like asking a fish, if it's wet, it doesn't really work if everything is wet. You you have to sort of see that it's not the general problem to see when it is, in fact, in a particular right. instance, a it's, problem. It's, uh, it's that old maxim. If, uh, if you defend everywhere, then you defend nowhere, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Wasn't that the argument against the war on terror? Uh, that it's a war on means. all fronts? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, the war on terror was the war on everyone who... Bush administration believed was a problem at the time, and they just couldn't come up with a nice way of saying that. So that's why they went with terror. <laughs> and I say this as a, a bloodthirsty, warmongering neocon uh, neocon coward who is uh, strangely uh, 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 supportive of some of those things. But anyway, that's not the point. <laughs> so, uh, what were we going to talk about today? Uh, oh well, yeah, let's not. I think I think you need to start American us off. Yeah, Nick needs to start us off with a, a short but very interesting um, development from the greatest citadel of power on the planet. Right. So, um, as as some of our listeners may be aware, and and some may literally not be aware, um, there is a theory out there at the moment that. Uh, uh, Donald Trump is going to be found that the election is going to be found to be fraudulent and that uh, Donald Trump, along with two senators, are going to be 
uh, reinstated into their positions um, and and resume their role. So Donald Trump will become president, and the two Republican senators will take up their seats in the Senate. Now, in August, uh, I, in August, and this I is not just I, a theory that it'll happen sometime right. in the future. It's going to happen now, 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 just now. Right? How do we say it in South Africa? Oh, no. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, 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 we have been through this before, um, and I know that uh, some people have gotten upset about uh, us about it, but we do not believe that there was uh, vote fraud of the scale to change the result of the election in the United States, um, and that the uh, and that's the first problem with this theory. But the second problem with this theory is that. <laughs> There is no reinstatement process. So even if it did in fact emerge, um, that a which it won't, but even if it, it did, but even if it did, if it emerged that a that the president had been completely uh, uh, hard done by, and the system had been rigged, and it was the greatest attack on democracy in America's history, um, there is no reinstatement process. So then. You know, there would have to be an impeachment or something like that, which wouldn't happen. Okay, so there's 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 two problems with the theory uh, that you've already identified. There's a third problem with the theory, which is that it seems like a crazy conspiracy theory coming out of the New York Times, which just wants to make fun of Donald Trump and make it seem like he's still important when he isn't, and make it seem like exactly. he's crazy when he's not really that crazy. So, and so, can so we really trust Haberman. the New York Times to right. say anything about Donald Trump? So I think it was Maggie Haberman from the uh, uh, New York Times. She writes this piece and she says, Donald Trump believes that this theory that I've just talked about is going to be the thing, is, is going to happen. This is his genuine belief. Now, there have been, as, as Gabriel is, is uh, happy to point out, there is an enormous number of garbage stories about Trump that have come out over the past four years. All these badly sourced stories just filled with kind of unsubstantiated nonsense, anonymous sources, reasons that you really shouldn't take them seriously, right? Um, and yet, <laughs> uh, Charlie Cook, who is a, you know, he's not a super Trump-friendly dude, but he's a, a right-wing guy. He, uh, he, he writes for the National Review. I think he voted for Trump. He lives in Florida. He's a really, I, I think he's a really solid up-and-down-the-line kind of dude who's not one to lie, says that, he was certain that this was garbage, so he knows some people in the Florida Republicans um, who are, of course, close to Trump at the moment because that's where Trump is living. And he confirms that um, as, as for the evidence he's seen, it does seem that Trump does, in fact, believe this theory. Which, yeah. So Trump really believes he's going to be president in August. Which and is, the moon is made of cheese. And Yeah, so, I mean, I really hope it's not true, but I kind of trust Charlie cook so <laughs> i yeah. don't feel very good about this this doesn't seem like it will end well <laughs> it doesn't and i think that we at least i sit in this interesting position where i wouldn't have voted for trump in 2016 because i was just too afraid of him chanting locker up and telling his crowd to be people but i was delightfully surprised at a lot of his presidency um think there were some good reforms uh, good foreign policy moves under Pompeo, some embarrassing stuff, but not nearly the threat to democracy that I thought it would be. Kids in cages was this sort of uh, moral, terrible thing that Trump had done. It turned out that that was uh, something of a hangover from the previous administration, which had just increased. You know, I don't know. I, I, I was, I was, 
I felt like I could see through a lot of the anti-Trump nonsense, the Trump derangement syndrome. And I felt like I could also see through some of the Trump derangement syndrome that was super for him, that sort of made it seem as if he was uh, playing four-dimensional chess. And then when the Capitol Hill was invaded and he responded, I'm not so concerned that he said, you're lovely people, but I'm very concerned that he didn't say you must stop this now and that this never should have happened and that you should never do it again and this is completely unthinkable and not worth it and terrible, terrible, terrible. He just sort of failed to uh, use his place of influence to stop a very serious attack on American democracy. Uh, that and his commitment to the big lie theory that there was such widespread election fraud that the results actually would have been in his favor were it not for that. Those, uh, despite all of the evidence coming into the contrary, not that there was no election fraud at all, not that there was nothing worrying about the way that the system was run, but certainly the evidence as it came in showed that that was wrong. The fact that he's sort of kept with these two things has changed my mind again. Now I'm back in the position where I really, really, really see him as a, as a dangerous threat, not only to American society, but to the world, especially because a, a significant minority of Americans will follow him off the edge of a cliff if he says that on the other side is milk and honey. <laughs> I now worry even more. The Biden administration seems to be pulling in the wrong direction. Uh, $6 trillion dollars worth yeah. of printing. The Trump AI side seems to be pulling in the wrong direction. The middle ground seems to be increasingly resigned to the lunatics that are currently running the asylum. Yeah, no, it does seem to be the case. Um, really doesn't feel like there's any particularly good options for uh, for America at the moment. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Anyway, uh, we didn't want to focus too much on this today. It's just something to, to read about. If you don't believe us, uh, do go and check it out for yourself. I'm sure you may be interested to read more about this. Yeah. Um, what we really want to do today is talk about history, right? So... Oh yeah, little little bit of revisionist history. There's this nice line that uh, Chairman Mao had that he sort of ranked society on how how terrible you were because of how infected you were by bourgeois values. And historians he considered to be, I think, the second lowest or lowest class uh, <laughs> pig swine that feed on mushrooms in the dark and then only produce more fecal matter. And they must sort of have their reading glasses ground into dust and their elbows shattered at the wheel of rural agriculture so that they can learn what really needs to be learned. You so they're all revisionists. Now, in a sense, he's right, of course. History is a process of revising our previous understandings of the present. Right. And revisionist history, when it's a cuss term, means you're revising it in order to uh, you know, some sort of point, mythologize yeah. your way into a new position of influence or something like that. Um, but the good side of it is just saying, you know, okay, here we had an appraisal. It was good on this front, bad on this front. Here we have a new appraisal. And so yeah, I think we want to talk about... In the way revisionist history is often used, it's very often used as a kind of a shorthand for uh, left-wing reviews of history to make it seem like the left was always right about whatever the question is. Yeah. And there's some writing stuff as well, I'm sure. Well, I don't know it as no, well. There, there is. I'm not saying that it's, it's – it's, but I'm just saying when it's properly used as, an, as a term of abuse. Oh, um, no, but it's also used by the left. Oh, if, if you're a revisionist, you know, if someone says colonialism wasn't all only a bad thing, 
right. or that its legacy had some positive effects. I say, ah, oh, you're being a revisionist of history. You're being an apartheid right. apologist. Or... So, so what we want to do is kind of focus on two figures. One, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, who I think if people know anything about him, probably think he was a pretty bad hombre. Yeah. Um, and the other, Jan Smuts, who I think some people hold in pretty high regard, especially some classical liberals. Um, and some people sort of consider to be evil incarnate because he was just a white, another white leader of a white supremacist South Africa where black people weren't allowed to vote or to own land or do business or reside in most right. of the country. And that's all true. Um, but what we want to do, what I want to sort of make this argument about smuts and, and really I'll sort of lead with the conclusion. The conclusion is I think that the best analog, the best historical analog, of Ramaphosa's presidency is Smuts's presidency. And that a lot of people's attitudes towards Ramaphosa uh, would be well applied towards Smuts. But I'll, I'll justify that. But let's start out with Kaiser Wilhelm II. So bad guy or secretly kind of a good guy? Right. So Kaiser Wilhelm II, um, I, I, I'm not as familiar with his early his early life, but basically he comes to the throne and he, as far as I'm concerned, he makes one of the biggest mistakes in German history, which is that he fires Otto von Bismarck, because Otto von Bismarck, who has been the very influential, very powerful chancellor of Germany for the past couple of years, has reshaped Europe, has... Past couple of decades. Decades, has founded Germany, I mean, like, pretty much literally. Yeah. Um and, and Kaiser Wilhelm II, who's now, you know, the, the emperor of this new German state that has come into being, says, oh, well, you know, you're actually a little bit too powerful and you're a bit too old and you've been there too long. So out you go. Fuck them up. Okay. So, you know, whatever. That's that. If that was the only thing and, he did in his and life. And by the way, probably... by the way, part of the reason that he felt he could do this, because Bismarck was super popular. I mean, Germany's yeah. founded somewhere in the 1860s, 1870s. It was a relatively young country. And uh, because Bismarck is the Iron Chancellor who, who sort of has rapid defeats, he beats France very, very quickly. Uh, that gives him military prestige. He then unifies the country, makes sure that Austria is not part of Germany, doesn't try and do this race nationalist thing of all Germans or all Teutons must be under one country. Instead, goes with sort of Wilhelm Gottlieb Herder's idea of like building a new cultural identity that is about ritual and music and uh, achievement rather than immutable characteristics, also, which is basic language, up. makes him very, very popular. And it also helps to set up the first welfare state, um, partly hmm. as a way of making sure that the people don't clamor for democracy. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of, he, he, old age grants, some healthcare, really, uh, so really popular stuff. It's really good. Also has this curious thing where of all the major power European leaders, he's the he's the only one who's passionately against um, colonialism, which is part of the reason that the main colonial conferences that people all know about, 1884-1885 Berlin Conference, are hosted in Germany because between the French and the Brits, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and the Russians to an extent, right. all of them have everyone is – yeah. very keen on accruing power, whereas the Germans have clapped France and could have taken it and then sort of gave back most of it. Clapped Austria, could have taken it all, gave back most of it and weren't really doing anything in Africa. And that's because he argued all of the right things about why colonialism is a bad idea. It's not very respectful. It doesn't really work. 
economically, you end up spending more than you get. It's uh, it's not good for growing free trade. It instead sort of gets these trade blocks that aren't really uh, uh, and good and for competition. And it's unpopular. Right. And it's unpopular. And they couldn't sustain it because they didn't have a big navy. Anyway, he then changes his mind, which is part of, I think, where he starts to fall apart a little bit. And in part to support uh, new kind of white elephant projects, he proposes a beer tax of like something ridiculous, like 2%. Well, and and for the thing. first that's time, the, the, <laughs> there are cartoons coming out in the German press that say, I don't know about this old man who, who wants to tax beer. Maybe he's been around for too long. And Kaiser Wilhelm is like, Kaiser Wilhelm II is like, well, you see now, so people are and saying you're, you're, mm, you're we, we, they, don't, they don't want these things. And so, you know, maybe it must go away. <laughs> and, of course, what results from that is an imperialist project which increases German taxes by some orders of magnitude before right. leading into one of the grand defeats yeah, both in so, the First so and Second World Wars. One of the, one of the key points about World War I is that... Um, Germany's behavior in the lead up to the war, a lot of it flies in the face of Otto von Bismarck's goals in foreign policy. He had really tried to make sure that Germany didn't get dragged into any wars of two fronts and that there was a kind of balance of power in Europe and that all basically just kind of gets tossed out the window. Um, and that it wouldn't try to pursue like either land grab policies or the kinds of silly race-based policies that so excited the situation in the Balkans. Remember the Balkans down in the south uh, were occupied in part by the Austro-Hungarian Empire and part by the Ottoman Empire, both of which were sort of multiracial uh, entities that were founded on other kinds of values. In the Ottoman case, much more on religion and in the Austro-Hungarian one, much more on some version of an enlightened kind of uh, pluralistic... Kind of set of values, line. but yeah, you know, the, the, family, the only bloodline that matters is the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs, yes, <laughs> um, and it's and the state is full of weird compromises between various local elites and the yeah, and it's very cosmopolitan. Vienna is the birthplace of psychology and all kinds of right, right. Uh, breakthroughs in literature, uh, precisely because you know modernist literature. Uh, the guy in Trieste that uh, Ulysses was based on, that James Joyce's work was based on. Because it was so multicultural, because you had, right, right. yeah, a melting pot, um, and then that collapses so because in the Balkans they're like, no Slavs, no, we must be Slavs, no, we must be Teutons, no, we must be Aryans, no, we must be Ladatsa Italians, and so on and so forth. That's exactly and, what uh, Bismarck thought is going to screw everything up. And, uh, it did. and Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, of course, is uh, very keen on this German stuff, on 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 race nationalist stuff. He's he talks a lot about the white race and the yellow peril and all that sort of thing. So uh, one of his next big um, snafus, I don't know, I'm sure anyone here who listens to us who's um, read about the history of the First World War um, knows that in the First World War, the Allies often referred to the Germans as Huns. And you might think, oh, well, it's just sort of a term of abuse that kind of, you know, just because the, the Germans are barbarians or whatever, and that was the, the view of the Allies. But actually yeah, it comes yeah. from a speech given by Kaiser Wilhelm. So Kaiser Wilhelm was seeing off some German troops who were about to go to Namibia. Um, and these troops would, as it turns out, go out to Namibia and do some very terrible things to the Herero and Nama people in Namibia. 
um, which some people have called a genocide. And uh, Kaiser Wilhelm gives a speech where he probably says, right yeah, yeah uh, we're, we're, yeah, no, probably rightly, uh, where he says to these troops before they go off, um, you must be like the Huns and uh, basically destroy everything in your way. You must, you must have no pity and, and, and things like that. So he gives this really fiery speech. And his staff, Kaiser Wilhelm's staff, realizes instantly this is a PR disaster. He just told a bunch of soldiers that they must behave like Huns, right? When they're supposed to be going off to do some sort of, you know, I mean, the ways that colonialism... Civilizing uh, mission. Yeah, civilizing yeah. mission of, of the peoples of Namibia, right? Um, it's even worse when you know that they went off and then, you know, genocide at the local population. Um, but this is, you know, even just, even if they hadn't done that, this is pretty bad. So they immediately round up every reporter and uh, have them basically suppress the story because that's you know, that's how Germany worked back then. However, there was a reporter who was sitting on a roof nearby um, because he couldn't get like into the crowd and he wanted to basically be above things so he could see what was going on. And he escapes the notice of the authorities and he goes off and publishes this. So it goes all around Europe. So that's what I love bad, about right? that story is that my mother, my mother's uh, one bit of concrete advice that she gives me every time I go out into the field to do some journalism is she says the really smart journalists don't get lost in the crowd. She was very angry with me when these people threw rocks at my car and said they wanted to kill me. She said, you mustn't do that. You must go and sit on the roof like a proper journalist and take photos from above where no one can see you and listen to what's happening from far away. And uh, this oh is the perfect mind. example that you can actually tell yeah. a story that's <laughs> <laughs> that otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell. Impresses exactly. history in this profound way that all Germans come to be known as Huns because a smart chap sat on a roof. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Dude, these and are, then tell us about, because yeah. I've got this Russian thing, please tell us about like, so the Russians had this complicated situation where they were the largest uh, empire on earth sort of by landmass and had covered, you know, gone all the way to the east coast and was a bit of a collapse of china had taken some of manchuria and gotten a lease in some of the right. so, warm so ports and and so no. they and so the russians were trying to figure out just the background of this is that is that the russian uh, diplomatic corps was trying to figure out what should our emphasis be should we be trying to um expand our territory important. further to the east should should we be trying to kind of uh, develop infrastructure in those parts of Russia that are already Russia? Or should we be trying to attack the West, make friends with the West? Right. So, so there was, you know, there was a kind of, um, I don't know, uh, racial nationalist Slav project to, to go into the Balkans and expand Russian influence there and, you know, fight the Ottomans and take Istanbul slash Constantinople or Zagrad, as the Russians call it. Um, from, uh, you know, and, and, and that should be the focus of Russian politics. Uh, and then there was also this thought that maybe they should go east. And as, as Gabriel said, they should kind of build up their eastern frontiers in Siberia and into China and that kind of thing. And they were building a Trans-Siberian Railroad, which is this massive, long piece of infrastructure all the way through Siberia uh, to help link their big port in the, in the east, uh, Vladivostok, with the rest of the country. Um, now, this, of course, worries a lot of the countries in Asia, particularly China, but China is kind of weak and is getting hit by basically everyone, so they can't do much about it. But newly industrialized Japan is a bit freaked out by this. 
Uh, now, they don't think they can take the Russians on, but they think to themselves, well, you know, we need to see if we can kind of nudge them into respecting our uh, dominance of Korea. And in return, we'll just kind of leave them alone to do what they want with China. Because they're very worried that the Russians are basically going to take over Korea and then they're going to be in Japan next. And the Japanese are... They're only recently coming up in the world. They've only recently modernized. They don't have a lot of self-confidence yet. And they only a few decades earlier had had some very bad experiences with the West where they were completely outmatched. So they are very nervous about taking on a big power. They're also very fearful. And when countries are fearful, they often uh, get a bit warish. Um, so there's this growing crisis now between Russia and, and, and Japan over control of the East. And Tsar Nicholas II, who's of course the Tsar of Russia, um, he's not really keen on fighting a war out there. You know, he's, he thinks it's a bit risky. They don't have that many soldiers out there. The railroad isn't finished. So they can't really get people out there. Um, he, he kind of would, you know, prefer peace. I mean, Nicholas was, he was probably a terrible leader from, from everything I've read about him, but he wasn't, I don't think he was some sort of homicidal maniac, um, unlike certain Kaisers. Um, <laughs> and so he, he, he basically, you know, he, he's, he's writing, because back then all the monarchs of Europe used to write letters to each other, right? All the time. And their cousins. Yeah, they, were all they were all related, yeah. You know, uh, they were all grandchildren of Queen Victoria, interestingly. Um, so he writes, he writes this letter uh, to, to Kaiser Wilhelm, and Kaiser Wilhelm says, no, 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 no. You can't have peace with the Japanese. You can't trust them. The devious Asian is like uh, is a threat to all of Christian civilization. And what they're going to do is go into Manchuria and they're going to arm thousands and thousands of Chinese people with rifles and they're going to invade Russia. And you can't possibly have it. You need to show them that, put them in their place and defend the white race. He writes these letters and at some point Nicholas writes back to him and says, I, I'd rather have peace with the, with the Japanese. And Kaiser Wilhelm replies, what an innocent angel that you showed no uh, understanding of the mind of the Oriental. <laughs> right, so. uh, and there's another racist crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's another, there's another um, reason of course that Kaiser Wilhelm is doing this, which is that he desperately wants the Russians to go off and focus their attention to the far East so that they don't mess about in Europe and in, uh, interfere with Germany or Austria, which is kind of what Kaiser Wilhelm cares about. Yeah. So, you know, Whatever, that's how, uh, that's some foreign policy there, but he uses some explicitly racial stuff to do it. And he keeps making speeches about the so-called yellow peril, which is this fear of some Asian nation becoming powerful and dominant. This contributes, although of course it's not the only thing, to Russia and Japan going to war. And rather humiliatingly, uh, <clears throat> Russia loses to newly industrialized <laughs> Japan. And they the, don't just lose. The white race, it turns out being white's not <laughs> that great. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not a. a Doesn't it's stop foolproof. Yeah, it's not foolproof. Um, and there's there's a great story of of the Russian fleet trying to get to Japan uh, from from the west, so from the Baltic, and that's a that's a great story. Perhaps we can tell it another time. Um, but anyway, so that's well, no, the, no. I'll just tell it. The long and the short of it <laughs> is that that the one Russian ship kind of gets separated from the rest, and then finally meets up with its friends like a month or two later, or whatever it is. And then like, oh, how are you doing? And they're like, oh no, we had a terrible battle with the, with the, with the Japanese fleet, but we fired three hundred shells and and we fought very bravely. And they say, oh, well done, you guys are so amazing. <laughs> and then they figure out 
that it was like a French merchant fleet. It's just like a bunch of yeah, like fishing and, ships. And some Swedish ships. And some Swedish ships. They, and they missed. Was, they didn't even they didn't <laughs> and it gets worse because this was also the second incident the Russians had had on that journey where they had uh, gotten into a fight. Um, while on their way to Japan, they passed by Great Britain and in the area called the Dogger Bank, they uh, they thought that they were being attacked by a fleet of Japanese torpedo boats. Now, how Japanese torpedo boats would be in the middle of the North Sea on the other side of Europe, anyway, they panicked and started firing at some British fishing ships, thinking that these were Japanese torpedo boats. They first hit one of their own ships. So technically speaking, in the fight between the fishing boats <laughs> and the Russian Navy, the fishing boats drew first blood. <laughs> but they ended up killing some British sailors. And Britain yeah. almost went to war with Russia over this. Because they were they were already allied to Japan. So it was it was um Yeah. Uh, was, so the only people who were really surprised were those who thought that like being white makes you smart. Uh, well, basically, everyone else is just an unadulterated <laughs> cock up. And of course, all of this yellow peril stuff that Kaiser Wilhelm had helped to popularize across Europe um, meant that when the Russian soldiers entered, because a lot of the fighting took place in China, they believed that because the Chinese were Asians, that they were automatically on the side of the Japanese and so treated them really badly as well. Yeah. Um, which was not really true because the Chinese don't really like the Japanese. Um, and so it was it was a big mess. So Kaiser Wilhelm, I think we can conclusively say, was a real bad hombre. Also, mm. of course, his militant racial nationalism and his strutting about and his belief in German superiority and all of that sort of thing contributes to the beginning of the First World War, which, as uh, we all know, was a complete catastrophe. Um, yeah. But here's, and here's for me itself the led to the collapse of the Weimar Republic and the Second right. World War. Right, yeah. exactly. So... Kaiser Wilhelm, like, I think he's the second ever German emperor. He was also the worst German emperor, <laughs> pretty conclusively. Um, but here's, here's, here's all you need to know about the character of Kaiser Wilhelm. Kaiser Wilhelm, after World War I, is forced into exile in the Netherlands because the, the German empire collapses and it becomes the Weimar Republic, right? However, Hitler rises to power, as we all know, and he begins World War II, and he starts invading neighboring countries, and he invades the Netherlands. And as German troops sweep across the Netherlands, Kaiser Wilhelm is sitting in exile there goes, well, isn't this great? Look, Germany's back on the rise again. So he writes a letter to Hitler and he says, ah, excellent job. Thank you very much for restoring Germany to her former glory. Are you going to reappoint me Kaiser right now? Because I'd rather like that. Hitler says no. <laughs> <laughs> so delusional, racist, unpleasant moron <laughs> yeah who also i think really did contribute to just the worst calamities so okay so bad hombre no one of the worst one of the worst dudes yeah. um and that's and and that revision i think the reason that, that that this requires a bit of a revision is that there was an idea and this is an important idea for the brits and many of the allies that emerged out of world war one and that sort of locked in the treaty of versailles was that the was people kind of bought into this race race nationalist idea both on the outside and on the inside they started to think of the german as a kind of person defined by a bloodline who is inherently more barbaric and militant aggressive 
And kills Belgians whenever he can. And rep and rapaces and, and Belgium killing and so on. And and it's 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 worth noting that that idea doesn't come from nowhere and it doesn't come from bloodlines. It doesn't come from genetically inherited characteristics. What it really does come from is the fount of the esteem market in that part of the world, which was the Kaiser, the person who bestows honors and disgrace upon uh, people according to his own belief system. But because he's so well regarded, sets a trend. I think that if you look from the late 19th century into the beginnings of the 20th century, you'll struggle to find someone as important and influential, pushing as much race-based realpolitik as Kaiser Wilhelm II. I'm not saying that he's alone. Generally, this idea was on the rise. And for sure, there are important academics in Germany, in the UK, in France, in Russia who are pushing this kind of thing. There are important uh, editors of newspapers which have a great taste-making role. But it's hard it to find a king... Right, who an emperor. is as belligerent <laughs> and as race-based as old Kaiser Wilhelm II. There's there's one little sweet anecdote, which is that Ludwig II was the emperor of Bavaria. So Germany, although it is unified, preserved, much like South Africa. Hmm? King of Bavaria, not emperor of Bavaria. K King of Bavaria, Kaiser of Bavaria, whatever you want to call him. Um, Germany, much like South Africa, kept its kings. Uh, you know, lots of different little kings. Um, and so Ludwig was one of the kings, and he he built this wonderful castle that I visited. Uh, that the Walt Disney it's called like the Fantasia Castle. Oh, yes, or something. yes, I'm sure people have seen pictures of it before because it's absolutely beautiful. It um, is so gorgeous. It looks like it comes from before time, but really it's, it was made in the 1860s. It's it's literally what the fairy tale kind of castle is based off of. Is that castle? Yeah, the Disney castle is based off that castle. And the interesting thing about Ludwig is that Ludwig is gay and tries to get married and it just doesn't work out him and the lady are really open about the fact in their letters that they, that they don't really love each other they really love wagner and so they call <laughs> each other by the names of characters from wagnerian opera and sort of really it's a kind of bloodless uh romance uh grounded in a shared admiration of the opera uh which is very sweet but it doesn't work and then he ends up shagging the master of the horse, uh, which is the sort of head stable boy or whatever you call it. But I think the master of the horse is a pretty sexy it's, yeah, title. It's, it's an important uh, honorific in European court cultures. Yeah. So what matters about this is because uh, the, the prevailing norms of the time uh, hold homosexuality, hold open homosexuality and complete disdain. It had to be kept a complete secret, although it was a bit of a sort of well-known secret within the family. That's one of and those I, open secret type things, yeah. Yeah, not that open, but like just within the family, yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, one of the, I, I read an account uh, when I was in university sort of to argue that, that Kaiser Wilhelm II was aware of Ludwig II's um, What's Oscar Wilde's term? Bumbery, bumberistness. I don't know. He, Oscar Wilde had a funny term for this kind of secret liaison. Anyway, and then he was a bit right. embarrassed. And then he felt like it was all the more important to show that we are real men by being real bloody sort of Aryans. Oh, uh, <laughs> so that even if there is a thing like, so you can add, 
you can add a kind of terrible homophobic slant to everything else that's already been said. He's just yeah. one of the worst people. And Karl Peters was the sort of Rhodes of the Germans who defied the foreign officer's orders to break into Uganda and use machine guns to plow down human beings as if they were sort of millicobs in the field and expand the German empire. And the foreign officer was very upset by this and said, we're not going to respect these treaties because we explicitly ordered, ordered you to stay within your bounds and not go ahead and do this kind of thing. And Kaiser Wilhelm II sort of um, vetoes that as one of his first moves as a young ranking sort of officer waiting to take the risk. So, and, and Carl Peters, just by the way, of Lord Goldie, who's the worst of the Brits and really screwed up Nigeria, uh, Tessa John Rhodes, and uh, oh, the French guy, not Bradza, the guy comes afterwards. Yeah. Anyway, of, 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 of the major powers, they all had these terrible colonialists who, like once they're on the ground, do this thing that uh, Joseph Conrad so famously portrayed of kind of really going against what the home office is ordering and becoming right, local yeah. uh, sort of chiefs. People and stuff, yeah. Exploiting and people with, with their superior arms. Um, the, you had a little bit of this coming from all of the major powers, but Carl Peters was by far the most rapacious. I mean, the only thing worse than that is the genocide of the Herero. And um, and yeah, Kaiser Wilhelm was, was on side with, with all of that. So he's a bad guy. Okay, so let's turn to Jan Smuts because I think he's more complicated... I think there's a more complicated um, appraisal to be made. So here's my spiel. And this is based on reading Richard Stein's book, uh, which we've mentioned a few times, Seven Votes, um, How World War II Changed South Africa Forever, as well as <clears throat> some essays by Hermann Giliomir, who was a former president of the Institute of Race Relations and one of this country's great historians. Uh, so I've been reading some of his essays from a collection, uh, but particularly reading the essays around the the, the build-up of apartheid. That's the sort of 1940s, 1930s era. Yeah. So the interesting... Hermann Giliomir makes this interesting argument that apartheid is not nearly the, the sort of popular movement that people make it out to be. In the sense that, not in the sense that the Nats didn't sort of win a popular vote, um, but both he and Richard Stein point out to the fact that the United Party being led by Smuts um, might have done better, might have actually held on to power against the Nationalist Party if the constituency lines had been perhaps more fairly drawn or perhaps just otherwise drawn. Right. Um, but more in what I would simply translate, but I think their language very much supports this, more in the system economy sense of people not having their minds made up about a racially segregated South Africa, so certainly that, not yeah. about having a, a kind of a, one oppressor race, uh, but being sort of led in that direction by the combination of prestige being distributed to those who push the idea, as well as uh, the opponents being ostracized. Black people like J.B. Marx, uh, what's his name, M.Z. and Keller, uh, <clears throat> some of the members even of the ANC youth wing, uh, certainly A.B. Kuma, who's the head of the ANC, uh, or Zuma, depending on the convention of pronunciation. You know, both black leaders and white leaders were uh, quite pragmatic and sort of wanted to get along and weren't happy about the Land Act, weren't happy about voting rights, but... Uh, would have been sympathetic to uh, 
uh, a franchised vote so that you know i don't know property owners as, or people would have kind of put in the cape yeah possibly expanding it which would have which would have been which is how democracies have usually grown in a stable non-violent and non-oppressive way it's not that everyone suddenly gets the vote it's that you roll it out slowly but surely and every sort of generation uh more and more people get it until you get to the point where everyone has it now I think some absolutists about democracy would say that that's not good enough and it's in fact very bad. But I think most people would agree that that would be better than going through apartheid first before getting yes. to <laughs> universal franchise. So, yeah, so one of the thoughts is that this is an idea on the table that real leaders are ready for this idea, but that it's not being implemented. In fact, the opposite. So Jan Smuts... Um, is in this funny position where early in his career, when he first becomes prime minister straight after Louis Boerter, he does push a more frankly non-racial line and then loses an election. And there's two kinds of big race debates. The one is thinking of Afrikaners, white Afrikaners as a race or Afrikaners more broadly as a race. And Herman Gilliamir does a lot of research to show that Afrikaner a hundred years ago was used uh, to mean, you know, not English that Afrikaners were mostly white and colored. Um, and sometimes Afrikaner was used by smuts, for example, in an inclusive sense. He said, sometimes I use it inclusively to mean everyone who lives in Africa and wants Africa to succeed. But sometimes I use it exclusively, and then I'm just not talking about the English. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this Afrikaner race, and there was the English race, and there was a bit of beef there from the scorched earth and the seven and ten women and children being killed in the concentration camps and all of that. And so you had to make peace between those two, and then you also had to make peace between black and white or white and all the other colors. And Jan Smuts was pushing a non-racialist line on both fronts and then loses the election, and the Nationalist Party, or a form of the Nationalist Party, comes into power, and Herzog uh, becomes a sort of grand leader, and, and Smuts kind of then aligns with Herzog and becomes his deputy. But he seems to have learned the wrong lesson from his slip in power. The right lesson would have been, if you're going to push this idea, you're going to get a bit of a backlash and then you need to keep with it and push it harder and then you'll make it through. The lesson he learned was not that. Instead, it was, look, if you go against kind of what the fashionable people are saying right now, then you're going to lose your power and I'm better than the alternative. So the most important thing is that I stay in power. And right. if you track Jan Smuts's legacy from 1939, when he becomes prime minister for the second time, after Herzog resigns uh, in frustration with uh, Parliament's vote to go to war, a vote won by seven votes, the title of Saint's book, Smuts becomes ever more preoccupied with retaining power and ever less preoccupied with any kind of uh, sort of policy consistency or, or sense of principle. In fact, he says of his deputy, Jan Hofmeier, uh, who's right. even more non-racialist, I mean, right. Jan Hofmeier is talking about uh, rolling out the vote to black people and uh, uh, sort of rolling back laws about uh, discriminating. Yeah, he was the great right South African liberal hope, basically. Yeah. And Jan Smuts says, you know, the problem with this guy, he's very young and he still believes in principles. And it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here, but he really does say he, the problem is he still believes in principles and uh, he hasn't yet figured out that <laughs> that's not how it works. So the, the, the sort of interesting historical note is that the major scandal at the time was this very small legislative amendment uh, 
small in the sense, not morally, but uh, geographically, that in Durban, Cato Manor and around there, actually, uh, sort of place that's remained historically very interesting. Um, there was clash both between black and Indian. This is the Cato Manor story, where a lot of Indian people are killed by black people and it sort of increases racial tensions. But there's also a clash between white suburbanites and Indian suburbanites. So there's parts of Durban where Indians are sort of running businesses and owning homes and it's super Indian. And then there's parts that are kind of mixed. And white people are starting to get worried about Indian people moving in. By the way, not all of them. It's not like a big popular groundswell, but there are these elite sort of cheerleaders that are saying, no, you can't let this happen. So we've got to draft legislation to designate whites-only areas and keep the Indians out. Right. So this is literally suburban-level politics. But it's not exactly non-racial, and it's not exactly moving in a non-racial direction. It's moving the other way. And so it's a test case for what Jan Smuts is going to do. Okay, you've inherited this system from Louis Boerter and then now from Herzog uh, of lots of racial divisions. Which way are you pushing? Are you going to push to reinstate colored people's right to vote everywhere? Or are you going to push for colored people to be taken off the roll in the Western Cape? Are you going to be pushing for more people? Now World War II has happened. Lots of people had to go to war. And so lots of people from the countryside have moved to the cities to fill these jobs. And now there's lots of black people getting new nice jobs. Are you going to allow this and grow it? Or are you going to push back against it? This is the major national political question. And right. Smuts very much is like, we must push against it. Now, you can't push against it all the way. He says to the Institute of Race Relations, he makes a speech in the around World War II. He says, it would be like trying to sweep away the sea. You can't send all the black people home. But at the same time, you can't really respect black people, um, even though I'm writing this sort of universal rights of declaration for the United Nations formation, and I'm very fancy out there for saying how important it is to respect people. Uh, you mustn't really respect people. Even, even while he's been heavily involved in the Second World War against, you know, Nazi tyranny in Europe and racial tyranny in Europe. Yeah. Sort of kind of misses the point somehow this is kind of the same thing as what's going on at home. And so the grand argument, and, and Smuts makes this argument in his, in public and to the Institute of Race Relations and in his private letters. The argument for Smuts is that if you don't vote for me, you're going to get something much worse. I am a compassionate and reasonable racist. I'm happy to work with black people. I'm happy to kind of have an arm's length kind of respect and the other guys are much, 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 much worse racists. So right. really what you need is a moderate kind of cuddly, internationally respected, well-meaning, well-intentioned semi-racialist rather than a full-blooded racist. I think one of um, Smuts's uh, uh, party slogans for a time was white leadership with justice. Yes. So he was very much for the, he was like, we must be in charge, but we must be good custodians. We must really take care of everyone else in a very nice way. Right. And we can so do that. But if you, if you give the other guys the chance, of racism. yes, if yeah. you give the other guys the chance, then it's not going to be good because, because the leader just doesn't have as good a character. So it really just comes down to the differences. I've got, you know, I'm a better guy than they are. I'll do this better than they will. So you must let me be the, the grandfather of the nation. Let it happen at my beck and call. And in case you think that I'm exaggerating this, after the election, 
we I got a quote from our, our colleague Michael Morris, who's who's written uh, a wonderful history of 150 years of the sort of independent Big media August, house. Yes, and uh, and so pulled this quote that Smuts had said from from uh, newspaper archives from the from 48 49, just after Smuts loses the election. Some four months after losing to the National Party, Smuts himself revealed the disabling indistinctiveness of the United Party when sparring with his nemesis, D.F. Malan, in a debate. He said, now this is Smuts saying, we have always stood and we stand for social and residential separation in this country and for the avoidance of all racial mixture. When Malan interjected, is that your apartheid? Smuts responded, with the telling concession that, quote, there is a great deal about apartheid that is common to all parties, end quote, offering as the apparently sole defining feature of the United Party opposition that, quote, we see no reason to change the political rights, small as they are of the native people and the colored people of this country. The small position they have in the parliament of this country, let them keep. Let them have their share here too. So this is the difference between a slightly exactly. not as bad racist and a full-blooded racist. Right, so that's it's not exactly a full-throated defense of the principles of all human beings being equal and non-racial equality. <laughs> By their deeds, so ye shall judge them. By their fruits, so ye shall weigh them up. The fruits Indeed. of Jan Smuts' apartheid light policy was to eliminate any possibility of real opposition, of a real alternative. The United Party had half of the electorate in the bag. It had it for all the same reasons that parties have this thing. Brand, loyalty, its ability to do some very good things for some of the people that were voting for it over the last few decades. The fact the that the esteem market just party. works like this, it gets together and people then like it. It is the relatively moderate party. So as long as Smuts was pushing apartheid light, there was no room for the real, a real centrist party to emerge because they, where is it going to come from? And anyone who tries to right. split, they'll just say, no, you're splitting the moderate uh, opposition or you're splitting the moderate government, and that's just going to put more power into the hands of the radical race-based socialists. This all sounds to me astonishingly similar to the South Africa we sit in today. The difference between Soro Ramaphosa and Nkosazama Lamini Zuma is not in kind. It is in degree. The difference between Soro Ramaphosa and Julius Malema is not in kind. It is in degree. This is not my view that I'm pulling out of the air. This is the view that Ramaphosa himself espouses. He says, look, the difference between me and these guys is I'm a little bit nicer. I'm a little bit more willing to say, have a small share. You don't, not everyone has to have class suicide or be driven into the sea. We don't have to <laughs> contemplate the slaughtering of all whites. Ramaphosa doesn't go saying, maybe we're going to kill all white people. He's much, much nicer than Julius Malema. But we have a choice. We can go in one of two directions. We can go for more non-racialism or more racialism. And Ramaphosa says, BEE, what did he just say this morning? The headline is, Ramaphosa says the economy must be bigger and blacker. Last year, he said the economy is terribly racist. When we were in the midst of the worst economic crisis since World War II, he says, no, 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 don't worry. The problem is that it's racist, and this calamity is actually part of the solution to that problem. Yes. He is different in kind, not in degree. And I think that if you look at South Africa between 1910 and 1948, you find a country that is 
properly unjust, much worse than the injustices of the last 30 years. Let's not compare them in, right. in degree. But in kind, there is a similarity. BEE is a kind of race-based law. The overt policy of trying to say of, of serving our people as a sworn president of the country, where our people does not include all South Africans, but only includes South Africans on the basis of the race. This is a kind of color-based policy. So everyone can vote, and that's very good, and everyone legally is allowed to own property everywhere, and we all promise protection under the law that is equal. Now, that is very, very different to South Africa in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. But we don't have actual equality before the law, and that's another similarity, and we don't have a government that overtly uh, represents all people, and that's another very sad similarity. So we are like a diluted version of that problem. Now, what came after that problem was worse and the, and the and the most bizarre and ironic thing and the thing to hold on to is that the Afrikaner nationalist party project was had a had three planks the one plank was to redefine Afrikaner so that it meant something racial now we can see a similar program today where instead of where, where the African National Party's program is to redefine uh, Zulu and Kosa and Kasi and so on, all these actual cultures to redefine them as subsidiaries of the grand black culture. So there's a cultural project here. We want to create an esteem economy where everyone is buying into the same code of conduct on the basis of the color of their skin. This is the sort of soft side of it. The hard side of it is the Afrikaner nationalist project was race-based. It was a race nationalist project. The idea was to say this country is specifically here to serve one particular race and others can stay or go according to how well they serve the interests of the one particular race. We see the same thing happening here. And it's socialist in the sense that we need more government intervention. We need the government to own more stuff, to interfere more in jobs, appointments, and so on and so forth, so that we can have Afrikaner, Afrikaner economic empowerment. And I'm not the first person to notice that this is Afrikaner economic empowerment was the basic policy of J.F. Malan. DF Malan. This is noticed by very sweet people in the Mail and Guardian over the last decade and a half who've said, look, they had Afrikaner economic empowerment. Now we must have black economic empowerment. So I'm not even the one drawing this analogy. This analogy has been drawn by proponents of black economic empowerment. They say AEE worked. After A comes B. Now we need BEE. The m amazing thing about this third side, which is really the side where the rubber hits the road, because it's where equality before the law gets eroded and it's where everything else becomes about money and power. And so it's hard to actually talk on the grounds of reason is that the argument for Afrikaner economic empowerment had never been weaker than in 1948. In 1905, the Afrikaners had very real grievances. People had just been slaughtered in big numbers. Uh -huh. There'd just been the a very nasty war. Yeah, that, and also education... British Civil service was entirely British. This, the education system meant that like Brits could read, very few Afrikaners could read. This all changes. Very few Afrikaners are wealthy, capitalist, merchants, manufacturers, anything like that. By 1948, Afrikaners are the majority of the civil service and have attained the most important positions in high in the sort of heights of the civil service, including ugh, this guy whose name I can't remember right now, but the guy who's started ESCOM and ISCOR and all of these things. He was, Close ally of Jan Smuts. 
he was almost like the Patrice Motsepe of the day. He was like the, the, <laughs> the billionaire Afrikaner who, through private initiative and excellence, had established these Afrikaans institutions that were working really well for everyone. The middle class was growing in the professions, doctors, lawyers, all of this kind of thing. Suddenly, there was lots and lots of Afrikaans doctors and lawyers. The argument for AEE was at its weakest, exactly when it became its most potent. Yeah. And the temptation for South Africans today is to think, just like Jan Smuts thought between 1945 and 1948, and all of his friends thought. The temptation was to think, no, but we can't lose to this project. Jan Smuts thinks DF Malan can't win because, look, life is so much nicer for Afrikaans people now than ever before. And he's just, uh, his whole argument is premised on the thought that life was very terrible a long time ago for Afrikaners, and everyone didn't like Afrikaners. And the Brits did all say that Afrikaners were baboons and, and such like. And, but, it, but it's not grounded in reality. And things have been getting better. And so it's going to be fine. And that's why he thinks he doesn't have to push against the Indian uh, exclusion in Durban. That's why I think we'll just appease a little bit. If we can just give them one more crumb, <laughs> then they're going to get fed up and they're going to be so happy because everything's going so well that they're going to stop this nonsense. But it's the opposite. The desperate argument for race-based socialism gains its greatest potency, at least in the South African context, exactly when it is the least meritorious, when it's the most attached from reality, because the last thing that you have is force and, and the mythological power of, of, of real esteem manipulation. So you really have to get it going. And this is the worry with South Africa, that Jan Smuts, that Saul Ramaphosa, much like Jan Smuts, is a nice guy, is a much nicer guy than any of the immediate alternatives. That, or, Zuma, or Zuma or any of them. Or any, any of them. Very nice guy. And he really does think that white people should have some small part to play. And isn't it sweet that he says so? And you can get along with him very nicely. And everything will be okay if you just give another two crumbs. Just expropriation without compensation, but not everywhere. Just take two farms. If they can just have two suburbs of Durban or whatever, two suburbs, right. you, you know. You know what? You can, you, can see, you can see a really good example of where this ends up by looking at how the expropriation bill uh, debate has gone in Parliament. The debate at the moment is not between uh, those who say it's a terrible idea and those who say it's a great idea. Um, the debate is currently whether the, la the land should all be nationalized or just the state should keep all of the power to be nationalized, right? This seems to be uh, the, the kind of division at the moment, right? Right. Between, Although, so no, to be, to be fair, it's like, should all the land be nationalized or... Or some of the land, and should and should the state be taking custodianship, or should it be giving title deeds? So Ramaphosa is coming out like a good guy because he's like, no, we must expropriate that compensation, yeah. but we can give title deeds. Title deeds are very nice, so he seems very reasonable by comparison to to the other side. No, no, we agree that we have to take away people's stuff. We're going to so grow we, by assets by burning. It's, yeah, it's it's kind of like we've agreed that someone's going to get stabbed. We're just deciding with uh, uh, how, how deep the knife here. I think on this one. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and people, I think, are very easily bamboozled by this proposition. They were bamboozled. Jan Smuts uh, won the Kaki election. You know, it's not like he, he didn't, much like uh, Ramaphosa, you know, he had a slightly discredited government. It had its problems, but he managed to hold it together by being the sort of lesser of two evils.
But also there's a there's another problem which I just like to draw to here, which is that Jan Smuts made far too much of it about himself in that sense, right? There was loyalty to people. Pe a lot of people called themselves uh, Smutsmen, right? I, yes. I, I used to know some guys who were, who were Smutsmen. And if and then of course he dies, and then you know who is there to stand in the United Party against the Nationalists? Yeah. Well, first he loses, and then he dies, and then it's yeah. no one. So then we have to yeah, wait until no Hess and Susman comes, the cricket in the thorn tree. Exactly, and then the, the the United Party has to split in what is a traumatic thing, and the and the new Progressive Party, the Liberals, have to spend all of their time fighting with the United Party just to build a political coalition to actually provide some some real opposition, a real so, alternative to apartheid. Yeah. Cyril, if Cyril is all that stands between us and, you know, the, the abyss, what happens if yeah. there's no Cyril? <laughs> then we are already falling. Then we are already yes. off the edge of the cliff. If it is true that Cyril is the only thing stopping us, then we are, then we in, are in big trouble. <laughs> then it's already happened. And this is, Sorry. and this, this point, here's why this point matters. Here's what's useful about history. When I was at school, some of my, yeah, some of my friends who were also poor at this fancy rich school and who were, who were black. Say, I said said to me, why don't I ask them, why don't you like the capitalist thing? Because I was like a fiscal conservative because I thought Trevor Manuel had it right. And they'd say, I'd say, why don't you like this thing? And they'd say, because, because the capitalists always come along and they promise happiness today. They say it's all going to be fine tomorrow. Or everything, if you just let it, us do it our way, it's going to be fine tomorrow. And we just know that's not true. We can feel it's not true. So we don't trust people who promise happiness tomorrow because we know it's not going to work. At least the struggle guys say that it's going to be happiness down the line. We must, we must keep suffering with this thing, but it, we'll get there in some years. It's a long project, this thing. And George Orwell was very much of that view. In his review of Mein Kampf in 1941, he says, you know, the capitalists offer happiness now. The socialists offer happiness tomorrow. The interesting thing about the fascists is that they, that they promise suffering. And so he says you must also recognize that promising suffering can be very compelling. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do think it's a terrible mistake to promise happiness tomorrow. It's not going – there's countries – you must have a long view. If these things are going to improve, it's, we're going to keep getting worse economically, you know, relative to global emerging markets. We're not going to get to 6% GDP growth next year or the year thereafter or the year thereafter. And even the best policies aren't going to get us there – with you know it's going to take at least five years to get us there and once you get there it's still going to take another five years before you eat away into unemployment till it gets to 25 percent and 25 percent unemployment is like worse than the worst country in europe and so, on. so, and so fact, these things fact, take in the, time in the very short term things would probably actually get a little bit worse um because there would be a lot of instability and pushback by special interest groups yeah um, you know, you toy toying by the unions, all kinds of things. Exactly, exactly. All sorts so of if problems. if you if you really want to see, if you don't want to see this nonsense new dawn, oh my goodness! If 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 you're looking for hope tomorrow, then all that's happened is oh, you've you've made the kind of mistake that 13 year old boys at Sinsteadians who had just crawled out of the townships could see through. That you mustn't think that someone is going to go and make this country happy tomorrow. If you're looking for real happiness in the future, you must look in the longer term. And then history can be a nice guide. What does it mean 10 years? What does it mean 20 years? Well, history gives you that sense. And if you start looking in a 10 or 20-year time horizon, and my analogy between Ramaphosa and Smuts holds, 
then you must seriously consider the possibility that this is the good times. That in the 2040s, people are going to look back on the 2010s and the 2020s as the good times. That once Ramaphosa is dead, they're going to be Ramaphosiacs for the next 100 years who say, he was so nice. Look how well everything was going until he ran out of power and we had yeah, to put Jamini Zuma in charge or Malema in charge or whomever it was. This is this is the, the and the alternative is that you know people figure out that Ramaphosa is sort of the last thing standing between us and oblivion, and so extend the change the constitution once you've changed the Bill of Rights. Heck, right. it's not such a big thing to exchange yeah, exactly. the term limits. And then he's, he's and like, then it's like, and yeah, and then it's then it's like Ethiopia, Mugabe, you know, yes, literally yeah. not able to not able to walk properly, but still in the <laughs> in the chair as the leader. So there's another nightmare possibility that, that comes into light only if you see the longer term. And if you want to see the hope in the longer term, it's not that people trust in a character. There is no character. There's no Smuts. Smuts was, for sure, the best politician in the country until Nelson Mandela or F.W. de Klerk. But he was not nearly enough. You can't trust characters to save you. It has to be an idea. It has to be a set of principles, a set of real values that can coordinate real action. And that will take years. It is going to take years for people to realize, not just privately that racism is not the problem. 80% of South Africans already know that. Our survey showed. It's going to take years just to go from people privately knowing it to making it a thing that's taken for granted in the public debates, where someone says, no, it's racism. You get laughed off. Oh, we need the economy to be blacker. Oh, they get laughed off. It's going to take years for that to become a joke. It's going to take years for the alternative, the non-racialist alternative, to become a real engaging idea. And, yeah, our work, I, I suppose my work is premised on the thought that it is going to take years and that if I look on the broader time horizon, the alternative really is that as after smuts came apartheid, so too after Ramaphosa, we really see what black socialism, race-based socialism, means at scale. The argument for BEE has never been weaker, and yet the pundits have never pushed harder, and they are changing the laws in myriad ways. Guns taken out of people's yeah. hands, yeah, no, post really office taking all... It's, it's go, we're going mad. The, the policy... The, the, the policy makers in this country, the lawmakers in this country are going mad in exactly the way that they were going mad after World War II. Just when it least made sense, they pushed hardest. What's that? Uh, and the problem is South Africans didn't stand up to it then. Maybe they won't stand up to it now. They knew better, but they kept quiet. I, uh, yeah, who was it? Who was it? I think it was Oscar Wilde or someone who said that um, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. This sounds an awful lot like a rhyme, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. we must uh, we must we must call it to a close there because uh, we are, I think, pretty much over time. So recommendations, as ever, I'm going to ask you first. Uh, do you have anything? Okay, to I do. Um, I've been kept sane by Roland Garros, mm -hmm. otherwise known as the French Open, which is kind of funny. But you can tell that someone's an Anglophile when they call it Wimbledon and the French Open. When they don't say the, the, the UK Open and the French Open and the Australian Open. No, 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 Wimbledon. Wimbledon is a special thing. 
So I like Roland Garros. Um, I've really been last night. There was a great game between Roger Federer and a young German called Kupfler. And Federer is like 40 years old and he really shouldn't be playing tennis, but he's so good at it. It's so elegant. It's nice to watch. And Kupfler got a little bit frustrated at one point. So he walks to Federer's side of the net because they play on clay. So you can see exactly where the ball landed. So the umpire says it is out. He says, no, it wasn't out. Then the umpire runs down and looks. He says, no, I can see it was out. So then Kupfler runs over to see it as well and so angry that he spits into the clay. And... <laughs> And this is like, you know, I love rugby. I love watching like, you know, men like 120 kgs, two fridges flying into each other at high velocity and sort of limbs. You know, it's like very visceral kind of uh, satisfying thing to see this approximation of war. Somehow this French kind of tennis thing, you, you see a man sort of spit onto a puff of dust and it feels even more violent, feels even more scandalous. And I think that gives a sense of tennis. I, I, lo I love it. It's like boxing. It's, a, it's the most sophisticated form of boxing. They stand at the baseline and they punch as hard as they can and you need technique and it's extremely tiring. And yet there's this great proximity so you can see it all play out over time and space, elegance and a bit of ballet, and a lot of kind of chess kind of thinking. It's a, it's a great relief to me. And I recommend, yeah, I don't know. Even if you don't like tennis, I picked up tennis like two years ago. Hey? It's it's not something that I was brought up into, and I think it's uh, th that's a quality thing about it too. That it's, it's very accessible, very nice. Excellent. Well, I'm going to recommend now. This is late because the show has been out forever, and probably everyone has watched it who's going to watch it. Uh, but I've recently started watching. Uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, which is kind of unique in. Uh, in, in, in sitcom TV show type things and that rather than trying to make you like it, its characters, it kind of tries to make you hate its characters because all of them are really despicable and disgusting. Um, now, I will say that uh, this show is not for everyone. It's filled with lots of uh, dark <laughs> jokes and gross subject matter, but it is quite hilarious, I found. Um, I, think it's, I think it's some good stuff. And uh, it, it, it often does fun little, it plays fun little games with like hot button topics, whether it be everything from abortion to uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict to welfare. To, it's got like, I think the first season, basically every episode is about some other new, extremely heated hot button topic, <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, but yeah, so check that out. Uh, I don't know where actually it's easy to watch these days, but anyway. Um, and I think that is all the time we have for today. So we hope you enjoyed our ramblings about great historical things. And uh, we will see you hopefully next week, assuming that Gabriel doesn't try to change the soul and minds of the country again next week um, in such a dramatic fashion as he did to cause us to miss a week. <laughs> so yeah, keep the flag of liberty flying.
Kerr.